Hi, my name is Maddie. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 111, verses 1 through 4. Praise the Lord. I thank the Lord with all my heart in the company of those who do right in the congregation. The works of the Lord are magnificent. They are treasured by all who desire them. God's deeds are majestic and glorious. God's righteousness stands forever. God is famous for his wondrous works. The Lord is full of mercy and compassion. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Linda. The New Testament reading is found in Romans 1, 18 to 23. God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodly behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice. This is because what is known about God should be plain to them because God made it plain to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through the things God has made. So humans are without excuse. Although they knew God, they didn't honor God as God or thank him. Instead, their reasoning became pointless and their foolish hearts were darkened. While they were claiming to be wise, they made fools of themselves. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images that look like mortal humans, birds, animals, and reptiles. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is David. Thank you for standing for the gospel, which is found in Luke chapter 19, verses 19 through 20. After taking the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the meal and said, This cup is the new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. Gracious Father, we've gathered this morning together to worship you as your people, as your sons and daughters who've been adopted into your family by your abundant grace. And we ask that as we uh, open the scriptures, that you would open our minds and our hearts. That as we look and read and listen, that your spirit would be at work changing us from the inside out, making us more like Jesus, that we might live our lives in a way that gives you glory. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Welcome. You may be seated. My name is Jason Jackson. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. If you're visiting with us again, we are absolutely delighted that you're here. This is for us the seventh Sunday after Pentecost, which means it's seven Sundays after the day that we gathered together to celebrate the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. Uh, Really that day in which God came and flooded that upper room where the disciples were gathered after Jesus had been crucified, died, raised again, and ascended into heaven. The church gathered together, the Spirit came, and we began to see this movement um, was spread across the globe uh, because God had given his spirit to the church. In the middle of this season, what we're talking about uh, is a number of things that actually 
are distinctive about the church's life together. So we're in a preaching series called Grow, where we're examining the practices that both shape and sustain the people of God. Those things that actually help us to embody all that we believe about who God is and all that we believe about what God's doing in the world so that we can actually participate in God's ongoing movement, his in-breaking kingdom in our everyday, ordinary lives. Uh, So we're examining those practices. And the whole series is based off of what we see the church beginning to do after Pentecost, what they devoted themselves to, what were those practices. So we find in Acts chapter 2, that we find this verse, that after this great Pentecost event, that they devoted themselves. They really gave their entire lives, their focused attention to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. And then we see that out of this spins a number of other practices like hospitality and generosity and simplicity are things that begin to mark the life of God's people together. So we're examining these things, talking about how do these practices mark our lives. And today we're going to go back a little bit and talk a little bit more about the breaking of bread from another angle. The breaking of bread we mentioned a few weeks ago is a reference to the Lord's table, to communion, to this thing that we do every week as we come to receive the body and blood of Christ. And we know that this practice is actually rooted in the last supper that Jesus shared with his disciples before he was crucified, buried, and raised again. That moment where he gathered together with them. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we find that while they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Throughout our life together at New Life Downtown, and even a couple weeks ago when Pastor Glenn preached, we've continually come back to this passage and recognize that this is a metaphor for the life of the church. That like the bread, we are blessed in Christ. That we have been blessed abundantly by our God. And we're invited to live a broken life, a life that is opened and honest and vulnerable because it's not until the bread is broken that bread can be shared. So we're called to share our lives together. And then we're given, given out in service to the world for the sake of God's kingdom. This is a metaphor for the life of the church. In this passage, the underlying word for blessed there, the underlying Greek word is eulageo. It's where we get our word eulogy, and where Derek Zoolander gets you googly or you googleize. It's that underlying word there as we translate it as blessed. But interestingly, that word occurs in several passages about the Lord's table, but not in all of them. In other passages, the word gets switched out for another one. So we find like in Luke's gospel, it says, after taking the bread and giving thanks, he broke it and gave it to them. So in some of the passages, we find this reference to blessed, broken, given. But in some passages, we find that Jesus, instead of uh, blessing the bread, he gives thanks. The underlying Greek word there is eucharisteo. It's where we get the term eucharist, which is one of the terms the church has always used to describe the Lord's table. It's referred to as the Lord's table, to communion, or to eucharist. The table is a great thanksgiving. 
That fundamentally is what it is. In fact, a lot of traditions will refer to the prayers that we pray around the table, that liturgy as that, as the great thanksgiving, the gathering together of the church to give thanks at the table. So we find at the core of our worship, and really the central practice of what we do together as a church, there is a theme of giving thanks of expressing gratitude. According to Paul, at one point in one of his letters, he says that this is actually God's will for us, that it's God's will that we give thanks. In 1 Thessalonians, he says, give thanks in every situation because this is God's will for you in Christ. It's one of the actually very few moments in Scripture where we find that the Scriptures say explicitly, this is God's will for you. I remember when I first became a follower of Jesus as a teenager, God's will to me seemed like this very mysterious and very slippery thing. And if you missed it, who knows what was going to happen, right? It was always connected to like choosing a college. Like there's, oh, there's this one place that I need to go. And then a major, like there's this one major. And if I, you know, if I miss it, oh my goodness, who knows what's going to happen. And then it, you know, continues on from there to a career and to the person that you're going to marry. And it was always packed with a sort of like fraught tension of like, oh, it's going to have to be discerned so carefully. And yet in moments in the scripture, we find God's will talked about, it's really plain things like be grateful. But this is God's will for us in every circumstance to be grateful. Not that those other things don't matter, that they, they matter, But God explicitly says, this is my heart and desire for you as my people. You give thanks. So I want to explore this morning, why is it that gratitude is so fundamental to our faith? What is it about gratitude that makes it sort of the essential fabric, part of the essential fabric of the Christian life, our centering practice as a church, and the very will of God for us as his people? And if it is that, then how do we cultivate it? How do we actually give thanks to the point where we can become grateful people? Uh, This is the um, distinctive mark of our lives. One of the great joys of my life uh, early on was the privilege that I have of having a really close relationship with my great-grandmother. She was born in 1889 and died in 1996, about a month before she turned 107 years old. An uh, absolutely incredible lady. Our oldest daughter, Cora, is named after her. She made the world's best pie. Um, but she also had an incredibly sharp mind and really had her whole faculties until the last week or two before she died. And so we were able to have these incredible conversations with her. So anytime there was a school project where you had to interview anybody for any reason, <laughs> it was just the grandma was the go-to. And I remember at one point sitting down at the grandma and asking her the question, like, hey, grandma, out of all that you've seen, all of the time periods that you've lived in, all that you've experienced, what would you say is the happiest time of your life? What do you look back on with the most sort of joy? And I'm sort of expecting, you know, I have this built-in answer as a teenager. Like, it's probably the roaring 20s. I'm going to learn my grandma was a flapper. You know, it's, <laughs> it's going to be one of those times. Or maybe it's the 50s and she was driving around in a convertible and, you know, listening to the Beach Boys or the Beatles or somebody like, and there's this aura around the 50s. Or maybe it's the 80s because I was born um, right before then. And so maybe it's, you know, this idea of great-grandchildren. And when I finally, like, you know, listened in to what is it you're saying, 
she didn't even hesitate and said, oh, it was the Great Depression. What? She began to describe this life of, oh, during this time, life was so simple and community was so important. And we all came together and supported and encouraged one another in ways that I look back on and think those were the best days. She described coming to church on Sunday morning and everybody bringing whatever little food that they, they could. And then after church, everybody heading to the field and everybody sitting around and sharing food and playing baseball till sunset and sitting around and talking with one another. She said, those were the best days of my life. And I remember thinking as a teenager, how can it be that you're most grateful for the time that people would normally say was the most difficult? How do we become those kind of people that live our lives with gratitude like that? I want to start actually on the other end of the conversation this morning and talk about the, actually the impact of ingratitude in our lives. Because I think there's something that Paul says in, the, in his opening uh, chapter in his letter to the Romans that begins to kind of paint a picture for us about the dangers of ingratitude that we can then say, oh, then this really is what happens when we live grateful lives. And he says this in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says, God's wrath is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodly behavior and the injustice of human beings who silence the truth with injustice. And then he says, this is because what is known about God should be plain to them, because God made it plain to them. Ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through the things God has made. So humans are without excuse. This is presenting this idea that there is a universally available general revelation about God. That if we just open our eyes and look at the created world, in some way the created world reveals to us who the creator is. And so this is evident to anyone who's willing to open their eyes and see that there is a general revelation. And then he goes on, he says this, he says, although they knew God, so they could clearly see how God had made himself known, although they knew God, they didn't honor God as God or thank him. They didn't give thanks. Instead, their reasoning became pointless and their foolish hearts were darkened. And while they were claiming to be wise, they made fools of themselves. They exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images that look like mortal humans, birds, animals, and reptiles. He goes on to say that they traded in the creator for created things. That rather than worshiping the creator, they worshiped created things. According to Paul, the failure to give thanks is actually the root of human sin. That this is where this begins in us. We could even say that infidelity, breaking faith in our relationship with God, and idolatry, worshiping other things instead of the Creator, are born out of ingratitude. That it somehow begins there. That when our gratitude decreases, we start on a very slippery slope towards sin. I think it kind of works this way for us is that our gratitude decreases, our discontentment begins to rise, right? We begin to be discontent with things. Just not giving thanks doesn't leave us in a neutral position. 
it actually sends us the other direction. We begin to be dissatisfied, discontent, and as our discontentment grows, our grumbling and complaining grows right alongside. And rather than giving thanks, we are grumbling, complaining about everything, critiquing and looking at things through very negative lenses. And then what happens is that in that moment, envy begins to be born. We start to desire other things. We start to desire someone else, something else, a different kind of life, anything other than what we currently have. And so what ingratitude does is it leads us away from one thing and toward something else. It causes us to turn away and to turn forward towards something else. It sends us on this really slippery slope. And we actually see that in the garden. That here in the garden, the very beginning of Genesis, God creates this abundant garden, a garden called Eden. Eden actually means pleasure or delight. It's a garden filled with beauty, filled with abundance, and he places his people there and he says, you can eat from any of these trees except for the one that's going to do you great harm. The rest of them are, you have free reign over. And in the midst of this, and we're introduced to a snake who approaches the woman and comes up and says, hey, did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees? The very question suggests that God's withholding. Right? That rather than being a generous, abundant, and gracious God, he really is a withholding God. He's pulling the wool over your eyes. And not only is he withholding something, he's withholding something beneficial. He's withholding something that you need or that you deserve. She quickly says, no, 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 we can eat from all of the trees except for the one, because if we eat from that one, we'll die. And the six, no, 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 you won't die. Instead, you'll become like God, knowing good and evil. Not only is it a benefit, it is a great benefit to you, and you deserve this. You need this. You want this. So not only is God withholding, God's lying about it. And what happens is the story goes on, and says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the same way the fruit gets described earlier, and that the tree was be desired to make one wise. That's the new word in there. She took its fruit and ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then we know as the story goes on that all the wheels fell off, and everything that life was intended to be gets turned up on its head. And we find ourselves in the kind of life that we live now. But it was a lack of gratitude that led to this discontent, and that discontent that led toward wanting something else, wanting something more, wanting something different. It was that lack of gratitude that caused them to turn away from God and his gifts and turn to the snake and his lies. It begins in this moment. And not only, I think, is that true in our relationship with God, but I think it's just generally true in our lives. It's generally true in all the places we find ourselves in. When we stop giving thanks for our spouses, for our friends, for our families, for our classmates, for our roommates, for our work, for our church, for whatever it is that God has given us, when we stop giving thanks, we start getting grumpy. (laughs) And all of a sudden, instead of our speech being filled with things that bring life and joy, our speech begins to be filled with complaints and critiques and things that we wish were different, we move to finding fault and pointing fingers. And before we know it, our eyes begin to wander. And we begin to start to long for and look for a different kind of life. 
they start to look for a different spouse, different friends, different family, different church, different job, different home, whatever it might be. And oftentimes the root of that is ingratitude. It's a failure to give thanks. So if infidelity and adultery, though, are born out of ingratitude, I think we can say the reverse is also true, that fidelity and affection are actually fueled by gratitude. That when we give thanks, we find our faithfulness and our love begin to rise in every area of our life. Our faithfulness and our affection toward God begin to rise as well as in every area of our life. When we give thanks, we find rather than being discontent, we find ourselves not only content, but satisfied and full of joy for the things that we have in our life. And we notice that as we give thanks, that our desire for those things actually begins to increase. That rather than drawing away, we draw near and all of a sudden we start digging deeper roots saying, I love this thing. I want to stay here. I want to stay in relationship with God. I want to stay in relationship with my spouse. I want to stay here and see what might be happen if I dig down deep and see, become really rooted and see what kind of fruit God might bear. It's true in every area of our life. When we give thanks, contentment and joy begin to follow. Affection and fidelity then follow. And remember, when we were moving from Tulsa to Kentucky, we were leaving a church that we absolutely loved. I had been a youth pastor there for eight years. We'd been at the church for nine and felt like it was time to go to seminary in Kentucky. And it was a really difficult place to leave. Over the course of nine years together, the church had really become my family. I didn't live, I didn't grow up in that state. And so really these people that I worshiped with together every week were my family and my friends. And so leaving was incredibly difficult. But we learned in that sort of journey of the importance of staying put for a while and seeing what it is that God can do. So we made it our goal that when we got to Kentucky, we were going to visit just a couple of churches, choose one, and then just stay there for however long we were going to be. So I think there's this realization that all churches have problems, and if they don't, they will as soon as we start to go. (laughs) Right? As soon as I show up, there's going to be mess. And so it was just that we want to find a place where God's word is faithfully taught, where people are invited into honest community and to sacrificial giving, giving our lives away in service. And so we're going to find a place and we're just going to stay there. And so we got connected with this uh, new congregation that was coming out of a Methodist church. And I remember feeling, you know, three, four, five months in, just like, uh, I don't know. Maybe we should find another place. Maybe we should go. And began to realize I was, I was expecting from this community what, I've, what I'd experienced for nine years with this other. But I didn't experience that right away. It was nine years of rootedness that led to those kind of relationships and the fruit that comes out of faithfulness in that, in that sense. But I found myself just beginning to say all the ways that this congregation's not like the last congregation. All the things that I wish were different, all the things that I would wish to change. And then really slowly, though, there's a moment, I can't even remember really how, our focus just began to shift. We began just to say, no, let's stay. Let's give thanks. Let's open ourselves up to the people that are here. Let's press in more. And we got involved in the Bible study and started going out to lunch with people. And all of a sudden, this became our home. And eight years later, when we left, we left in tears, just like we had at the previous place. We had to learn how to be grateful so that we could be rooted, 
It was in rootedness that all of the fruit that we wanted to see was going to take place. So how is it that we cultivate that kind of gratitude in our lives? What are the kinds of things that we can do? How can we practice this in such a way that we not only give thanks, but become grateful people? A few thoughts on this this morning. But I think, first of all, gratitude, we have to recognize, grows from grace rather than rights. Gratitude grows in the soil of grace. We live in a culture of rights. We have a rights-based society where much of our language is seasoned with the ideas of what we deserve or what we're due, what we've earned or what we're entitled to, what we're owed by virtue of our existence or what we've earned by virtue of our work. We're continually talking about the things that we have a right to. Our language becomes seasons of things like, you owe me, and I earned this, and this is mine, and that's not fair that they have this, and I don't, because somehow, in some way, I feel like I have a right to that thing. And we see our lives through this lens of rights. But we serve a God of grace who invites us actually to put on an entirely different set of glasses. To see life not through the lenses of rights, but to see life through the lens of grace. To recognize that everything we have is not something that we deserve or we're due or that we've earned or we're entitled to, but everything in our life is simply a gift from God. It's a gift of grace that God's given it to us. First Timothy says that God is the one who gives life to all things. So the very breath that we have in our lungs, the bodies that we are, the work that we're able to do, the relationships that we're in, all of this is God's gift to us. John 1 says, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, by God's grace, I am what I am. And God's grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. But wait, that wasn't even me. It was God's grace. Grace, 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 grace. The scriptures invite us to see everything as a gift, to see all life as a lens of grace, to see as something that's not owed to us or earned, due or deserved, to see everything as something that's been given. The Greek word for grace is the same word as the Greek word for gift. The word is charis. It's the root word that we get the word eucharisteo from. Grace and gratitude. One follows the other. Karl Barth said it this way. He says, the only answer to charis, the only answer to grace is eucharistia. It's gratitude. Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like voice and echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder, lightning. So when we see grace, we respond with gratitude. But when we see things as rights, it's not likely that we're going to give thanks. I simply have what I earned or what I deserve, not a gift that's been given to me. We do not very often give thanks for those things, but it's gifts that we give gratitude toward. And the scriptures invite us to see all of life as the great gift of God to us. And when we see that, when we can begin to see grace, what happens is that gratitude increases. Paul put it this way. He says, as grace increases to benefit more and more people, it will cause gratitude to increase, which results in God's glory. And God's glory. But seeing it as a gift is the key. I remember the first few times I went to a majority world country on a short-term mission trip. 
and having these places where suddenly you don't have what you normally have, uh, particularly hot water um, in the morning for a shower, and you get the nice cold wake you up kind of shower in the morning. And I remember coming back to the United States after those trips and being so profoundly grateful for a hot shower staying in the shower for incredibly too long, just going, oh God, thank you. (laughs) There is hot, scalding water coming out of the shower right now. And yet most of my life, I don't notice and don't give thanks for the hot water because it's just something I feel like I deserve. Or I notice it because I don't have it, but then what I do is I get mad at the hot water heater or mad at the person that took too long of a shower beforehand, right? It's a right, so I can get angry rather than seeing it as like, oh, thank you for hot water today and giving thanks for those gifts. Henry Nouwen said something similar after he'd lived among the poor in South America. He wrote this. He said, what I claim as a right, my friends received as a gift. What is obvious to me was a joyful surprise to them. What I take for granted, they celebrate in Thanksgiving. What for me goes by unnoticed became for them a new occasion to say thanks. And slowly I learned. I learned what I must have forgotten somewhere in my busy, well-planned, and very useful life. I learned that everything that is, is freely given by the God of love. All is grace. Light and water, shelter and food, work and free time, children, parents, grandparents, birth and death. It is all given to us. Why? So that we can say, gracious, thanks. Thanks to God. Thanks to each other. Thanks to all and everyone. Gratitude follows grace. It grows from it. Secondly, gratitude, I think, rises and falls on recognition and remembrance. It rises and falls on what we see and what we choose to remember. Jesus actually taught us how to notice God's grace in everyday life. Like when he looked at the world, he saw a grace-saturated creation. And this comes out in his teaching. For example, in Matthew 6, he says, Look at the birds in the sky. They don't sow seed or harvest grain or gather crops into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He says, Notice how the lilies in the field grow. They don't wear themselves out with work and they don't spin cloth. Therefore, don't worry and say, What are we going to eat and what are we going to drink and what are we going to wear? Gentiles long for these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all, all these things will be given to you as well. They'll be given. They'll be graced. He's given us these things, and Jesus is saying, hey, open your eyes and see. Everywhere he looked, he saw grace. He saw the gifts of the Father in the world around him. I think it's so much easier for us sometimes to recognize what's wrong, what we lack, what's missing, uh, what disappoints us, what we wish were different. I find this so often in my relationship with my kids that I spend so much of the day thinking about, oh, stop doing that. Please don't spill the cereal all over the floor. Why did you leave the Lego out there where I was going to step on it in the middle of, and why does that hurt so much? And having this sense of all the things that I see and wish were different. And then there's these moments where I just get smacked in the face. And I remember, no, like, look at the gift that they are. It usually happens for me, unfortunately, when I go in at bedtime to tuck them in and they're asleep. And I actually look at them 
rather than all the things that I wish they were or were not doing, I'll look at them and all of a sudden I remember, oh yes, these are my kids. I love them. They are God's sons and daughters and he's entrusted them to us to raise. Thank you, God, for them. But it's so easy for me to go the other direction. But grace rises on recognition, on noticing and naming the things that have been given to us. And also rises on remembrance. The Old Testament is filled with all of these conversations with Israel where God is telling them, remember, 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 don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. In fact, one Jewish writer, Eli Wiesel, said to be Jewish is to remember. That it's so central to the faith, remembrances. So you find passages like Deuteronomy 6. Now once the Lord your God has brought you into the land that he swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you a land that will be full of large and wonderful towns that you didn't build, houses stocked with all kinds of goods that you didn't stock, cisterns that you didn't make, vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant, and you eat and get stuffed, watch yourself. Don't forget that it's the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and gave you all of these things. So easy for us to forget, to not remember. We have this incredible propensity to forget what's happened in the past or to diminish it or dismiss it in some way. We are very much like, what have you done for me lately, people? I find myself so often in life thinking, the way I'm acting right now is like Dudley Dursley. Harry Potter's cousin in, in uh, the Harry Potter series. There's this scene where he's having his 11th birthday party and he's there and all these gifts are around and he's counting them all up and he realizes that there's only 36. And last year there were 38. There are two less gifts this year than last year and he goes into a fit, a tirade, wanting to know where are the other gifts coming from because last year there was 38, so this year there better be 39. Oftentimes when we remember things, we only remember them as like a measuring stick for what must be done better or surpassed the next time around. Yesterday's answered prayers mean very little to us and last year's even less. We expect more the next time around. But the scriptures call us to a life of remembrance, to recall and recite God's works in the past, to tell God's story again and again, to recount all that he's done, to remember that we've been rescued from Egypt, raised with Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, found and set free, adopted as his sons and daughters, and invited to feast at his table. As he says, come back and remember all that he's already done because when we remember, we actually repeat our thanks. When we remember, we give thanks again and our gratitude rises. This is why celebrations are so important. Why acts of moments in the calendar are so important for us in our life together. For Sarah and I, one of the things that we try to do every year on our anniversary is watch our wedding video. Just sit down and watch it again and listen to these, you know, mid-20-somethings talk about the life that's ahead of them (laughs) and look back on it and say, wow, it hasn't been that easy, (laughs) but it's been better. It's been good. And to look at one another and to remember those vows that we made and to celebrate the fact that God's brought us together and sustained us this far. Set up moments to remember This is why Sabbath is such a key practice because it asks us to look around, to take notice, to recognize, and to remember. It's why we do things like following the church calendar so we don't forget all the things that God has done in the past. 
but we continue to anchor ourselves in remembrance and recognition because gratitude rises and falls on those things. Lastly, I think gratitude matures in adversity and perseveres with hope. It actually matures in the most hard and difficult places in our lives because it's in those moments that we recognize gratitude can only persevere as we cling onto the hope that we have in Jesus. It's really easy for us to be grateful when our lives are flourishing. It's really hard when everything seems to be unraveling, when nothing seems to be going the way that we want it to. When we look at life and all we can see and remember and think about is the fact that so-and-so is dying or that we're dying or that so-and-so has just passed away. When we look and we, we think about the terminal cancer that either we have or a friend has. It's really hard for us to be grateful when we think about being caught in cycles of addiction where we find ourselves not knowing where our next meal is going to come from or on the verge of bankruptcy or seeing the thing that we've worked so hard to build and to develop kind of spinning out of control. It's really hard to be grateful when we find ourselves infertile or when we have to bury a child. And there's a sense for us that says, isn't being grateful in those times just pretending? Doesn't being grateful in those moments actually require that we deny the reality of what's going on? That certainly we cannot be grateful in those things when everything is great, fine. But in these other moments, like gratitude is not called for there. And yet the scriptures say to give thanks in all circumstances. How is it that that can be true? I think there's a misperception that life has to be either or rather than both and. I think we can be honest and we can name the stuff that's going on in our lives. We can talk about our pain. We can say very honestly and very frankly and very truthfully, this is how I feel. I am scared. I am disappointed. I am hurt. That this is the reality and the emotions that we feel. And at the same time, I think we can find a place of gratitude. And that gratitude comes when we recognize in humility that we don't have the whole story. That even in the midst of our pain and our disappointment and our loss and our grief and our sadness, we only see in part that we don't have the whole story, but our God does. And that we have no clue how it is that he's going to work in this situation to bring life out of death how he's going to redeem and renew and restore and resurrect this situation. We don't see it. So there's a place of humility that then clings onto hope and says that things are not always going to be this way. They are horrible now. They are awful. They are evil. My heart is crushed, but I know a God who raises people from the dead. And I cling on to the hope that things are not always going to be this way, that death and disease and destruction and disappointment and depression do not have the final say in my life, but Jesus does. And someday he's going to come back and make everything right again. So gratitude isn't denial. It's clinging on to hope and humility and saying, God, I'm placing all of my hope and trust in you and anchoring my gratitude not in the present but in the future. And saying, I'm grateful that this isn't the end of the line. This isn't the end of the story. So we can give thanks in all circumstances because this is the will of God for us in Christ Jesus. And when we give thanks in all circumstances, I think we sit next to Jesus You know, on the very night that he was betrayed by a close friend, 
abandoned by all of the rest, arrested for crimes that he didn't commit, and crucified by the very people that he came to save. That on that night when all of that began, he sat at a table and he remembered Passover. He remembered that his father rescued his people out of slavery and suffering in Egypt and brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey. You remember that his God is a God who saves. His father does this. And so he took bread, he broke it, and he gave thanks. In all situations, in all circumstances, we can give thanks in Christ. And we do that today as we come to the table, to this moment of this great thanksgiving, where we gather together in the midst of all that's going on in our lives, all that's going well, and all that's going awful. And we give thanks because we serve a God of resurrection. Amen? Let's stand together this morning.